It is a delight to be here with you. I was talking to Jeff's mother-in-law in Spanish and was tempted to preach the whole sermon in Spanish, knowing that at least one person would understand me. But I will preach in what is unusual for me, which is in English. In fact, I had to find an English Bible. I, I don't carry often an English Bible with me. So if you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, we are going to be looking at the parable of the sower. And I want to begin by asking, by raising a question, something I've been thinking about in the last weeks. We recently had a conference on the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is sufficient for everything with regards to salvation and sanctification. And so the question is, if God's Word is so powerful and sufficient to produce change, then why don't I see it more often? Why don't I see it more often perhaps in a family member, in my own heart? I remember hearing John Piper once sharing with frustration how he had preached his heart out describing the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel. And then after the service, he talked to an individual and was hoping to talk about what he had just heard, the glories of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And he said this person was like on a totally different radio length. It's like it didn't enter his heart. It wasn't penetrating at all. But of course, Pastor John Piper knows the reason why that happens, and we do too, but often we have this question if God's Word is truly powerful and truly sufficient, why don't I see the change that I would hope for? What about the person who tells you, I read the Bible and nothing happens. I don't understand it. I don't see that it's helping me. Maybe someone in your family, a child, a spouse. On the other hand, God allows us in His grace to see people where God is progressively doing His work of salvation. I've found out sometimes years later of someone that came to Christ through a sermon that I had preached, and it's an encouragement to know the power of God's Word to produce fruit, and even the work of sanctification through preaching God's Word. And so the question I want to ask as we look at this passage is, what is the relationship between the sufficiency of Scriptures, the reality that the Bible is sufficient for all matters regarding our salvation and our sanctification, how does that relate to the heart? So let us pray once more and ask for the Lord to help us. I like to say this from time to, my, time, to time to my congregation that there is a time right now that we have work ahead of us. I have the work to preach God's Word, but you have equally a challenging and wonderful task, and that is the Word to hear God's Word. It is not just a passive thing that we do. We intentionally seek to listen carefully to what God has said, and so we need His help for that. So let us pray. Gracious Father, thank You for the powerful Word of God, and thank You for these songs that we have sung. I've been encouraged to uh, just be part of this worship service and being reminded of these truths and how powerful Your Word is and our necessity to come to You for forgiveness and the need we have of a Savior, the need we have of You to do a work in our hearts. And so that's what I pray right now is that You would help me. Even as I preach in a language that's not what I normally preach in, that You would grant me grace 
that I would preach uh, faithfully and freely and uh, controlled by your Spirit, that I would say that which is faithful to Scripture, and that you would do the work that only you can do in people's hearts, that even as we look at the parable of the sower and the different types of hearts, it is likely that we have all four types of hearts right now in this room. And so we pray that you would penetrate by the power of Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, the hearts of those who are here in such a way that you would bring fruit of salvation for those who are lost. Perhaps they don't even know that they're lost, that today there would be a day of salvation for them, and that you would bring fruit of sanctification in those of us who are part of your people. And we beg that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's the idea I'd like for us to think about as we see this passage. This is what I'm going to pound on. The Word of God is powerful and sufficient, but different forces operate in the soil of the heart with the result that only some hearts will produce fruit. That's the answer to the question. And that's what this passage, I believe, teaches. The Word of God is powerful and sufficient, but different forces operate in the soil of the heart with the result that only some hearts will produce fruit. Someone could even question and maybe be opposed to that statement. I thought that what determines that there's fruit is the sovereignty of God, no doubt. Scripture is clear that salvation is of the Lord. Scripture is clear that He who began a good work in us will complete it. He is the one that does life change, heart change. But what we see in this parable is that the emphasis of the parable of the sower is on human responsibility. It's describing what's happening in the heart, what keeps that seed from bringing fruit. And the parable of the seed that shows up in Mark 4, 26 through 29, the seed that grows in secret will emphasize divine sovereignty. Scripture emphasizes both. I was sitting this morning uh, getting ready for church early at a coffee shop, and there was a discussion of a group of young men, and they were trying to explain away unconditional election, irresistible grace. And what they were doing, they were focusing only on Scriptures that describe human responsibility, which we believe Scripture is very clear that there is a responsibility to respond to the gospel, and that man is responsible to believe, and that he will be held accountable for unbelieving, for not believing. And yet, Scripture also teaches that God alone saves, and God alone draws people to Himself. And so, this particular parable is going to focus, the camera is going to be focused on the heart and the condition of the heart and our human responsibility. So, it doesn't deny divine sovereignty, but Jesus is speaking about these forces that are really there in human hearts and why, according to these verses, we don't see the fruit that we would hope for. So, number one, I'd like us to look at the first 13 verses where Jesus is going to teach the parable. He's going to tell the parable, basically, and He's going to explain why He uses parables. And that's the first 13 verses. And so, Jeff read uh, the first nine verses where Jesus basically has told us the parable. We're going to focus on the sermon more on the explanation of the parable that begins in verse 14. But in this first point, 
I would like to situate ourselves a little in the context. So verse 1 of chapter 4 says, again, he began to teach by the sea, and look what it says, and a very large crowd gathered around him. There's a great multitude, a very large crowd that is following Jesus. If we rewind a little bit and go back to Mark 1, verses 31 through 34, it gives us a little bit of how we get to these large crowds that are following Jesus. So Mark 1, 31 through 34 says, and he came and took her by the hand. He's talking about uh, Peter's mother-in-law that he's healing in her home. By the way, if you go to Israel today, you can see what's probably Peter's house that became a church because these type of things were happening there, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, as the word got out, someone is healing people, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And we fast forward to chapter 3, and it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd, and listen to this, heard, it doesn't say heard all that he was teaching, heard all that he was doing, they're interested in the works of Jesus. And there's times Scripture describes that people are interested in His teaching, but right here it's saying the reason there's these huge crowds is because they want to be part of this action that Jesus is healing and doing miraculous signs. And so that's the context when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus has these large followings because Jesus is compassionately healing and casting out demons, and these aren't all people that will eventually be saved. Many followed Jesus because of the bread and fish. He still fed them. He was compassionate over their physical needs. And yet, he's going to tell this parable in this context. Look at the rest of verse 1. It says, so he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea on the shore. He, he used the boat to be able to speak to the large audience. He taught them many things in parables. And in his teachings, he said to them, listen. And that's a key word there. It's the idea of like, pay attention. It's interesting that verse 3 will say, hear, listen. And then when you look at verse 9, the last verse of this paragraph, he says, then he said, let anyone who has ears, we would assume that everybody has ears, but not everybody who has ears truly listens. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. So, at the beginning and at the end of this paragraph, we will see a key point of his teaching that is related to pay attention, listen. He's speaking to these crowds that many surely were there because of the things he was doing, and he's saying, I want you to listen. And Jesus, as the great teacher that he was, used everyday elements in his teaching. In fact, one scholar tells that he went to Galilee, where this parable was originally given, 
And he saw a place where the earth was compacted because people had walked back and forth, ridden on donkeys. And along this row, there were thorns and bushes. And then there was a section where it was very stony. Throughout this row, there were thorns and bushes. But according to the scholar, just after the rocky part, there was a lush green field where a good crop was growing. And he said to himself, I just lived the parable of the sower. I have trodden the same kind of ground that Jesus described. So Jesus would have pointed to specific examples that they could visually see as he's telling this parable. Look how it continues in verse 10. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Jesus is going to give the reason that he is teaching in parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables. Why, Jesus? Here's the reason. Verse 12, so that. Here's why it comes in parables, according to Jesus, who's going to quote from Isaiah. They may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Those are strong words. Jesus is saying the reason that I'm teaching in parables is because if I don't teach in parables, they might understand and they might be forgiven. What is Jesus saying here? There is a judgment of Jesus upon the nation for unbelief. In God's judgment throughout Scripture, one of the ways it shows up is through hiding, through hardening further hearts that are already hardened. And so you think of Pharaoh. You look at Pharaoh, and you see Pharaoh is not responding to the Word of God. And if you look at the first times, he rejects God's Word, just like the leaders and the nation rejected Jesus preaching before this. You see Pharaoh, it says that he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But as you move forward in the Exodus narrative, there's going to be a shift. No longer is it Pharaoh who hardens his heart, but it says the Lord hardened his heart. And someone described it this way, if we repeatedly hear God's word and refuse to respond over and over again, there will come a time when we will become so hardened that not only will we not respond, but we will not be able to respond. Scriptures presents a great danger to hearing God's Word and doing nothing with it. Being accustomed to be exposed to God's Word just like the nation was and doing nothing with it. James will tell us later that we are to be not only hearers of God's Word, but to be doers, and he says, lest what? You deceive yourself. And the danger of self-deception is you don't know you're deceived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be deceived. So there is a danger of listening to God's Word and doing nothing with it and having no response to God's Word. It is a dangerous territory because our hearts will harden, and as we continue to harden, there will be a time where we will not longer be responding to God's Word. Now, let me be clear 
for God's people, if you are part of His people, if you have responded in faith and repentance, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. You cannot lose your salvation. Jesus holds His sheep, and no one can snatch those sheep out of His hands. But you may be a professing believer who thinks that you are a believer because of your Bible knowledge, but if that knowledge is not affecting your heart and there is no life change, the Bible calls us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. And so there is a warning with this parable. In fact, Jesus is going to tell us in verse 13 that this parable is key to understanding other parables. Verse 13 says, then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this is a key parable for you to understand, disciples. And what's interesting is Jesus would tell parables, and those who were truly interested would approach Jesus asking for an explanation of the parable. So there is an element of revealing as well as concealing with the parables. So that leads us to our second section, verses 14 through 20 where we will see four types of responses to the Word of God. We're going to see four types of hearts. And it is likely that in any gathering of a church or any gathering of professing believers, that, they're very mer- that there's likely these four types of hearts. So the first one is, verse 14, is the hard heart. I'm sorry, verse 15 is the hard heart. It starts off in verse 14. It says, the sower sows the word. And Luke chapter 8 verse 11 gets a little more specific and it says it's the word of God. Mark just describes the word and Luke is more specific explaining it's the word of God that is being sown. And the question is, who is the sower? Where the text doesn't tell us, but it is Jesus for sure and all of us who also preach God's word, who sow the word, would be the person that appears in this uh, initial verse. Verse 15 describes this first heart and describes what's the obstacle that keeps the seed, because the problem won't be with the seed. The seed has the power to produce fruit. The problem will never be the seed. The problem will be the type of soil. So look what it says in, in verse 15. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And it's interesting, it uses the word that Mark loves to use so often, immediately. This is a quick operation of the satanic realm to assure that that word doesn't take root in the heart of the person that hears it. Satan knows the power of this book. He believes it more than many Christians believe the power of God's word. Satanic opposition to the Word of God is real. So, brethren, we must remember that we are in a fight, and we must fight that fight according to how Scripture tells us to fight that fight. And it's interesting to see passages where Paul describes the opposition he had in his ministry. First Thessalonians, he says, I wanted to come to you sooner, but in God's sovereignty, we were not able to make it there. And that is true, but that's not what he said. He said, 
but Satan has opposed us. And Paul was firmly convinced of God's sovereignty. There was oftentimes the book of Acts that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow us to enter. And yet right there, he describes the reason we weren't able to get to you, it was because of a satanic opposition. So Satan knows the power of this book. Satan opposes the Word of God. Satan opposes the work of God. And we need to be reminded that we are in a spiritual battle. I had my 50th birthday recently, and I had this big box, kind of a long box, and it was a gift from my brother who lives in Argentina. And I opened it up, and it was a sword. So I had no idea why he got me a sword. It was this big, long sword. And, and so I wrote him, I said, hey, thank you for the gift. That Thanks a lot. I, I didn't know what, what else to say other than thank you. Um, and then he, he made a statement. He's not a believer. He made a statement um, for 50 more years of battles, that you can win 50 more years of battles. And he's probably thinking battles in the sense of family, in the sense of whatever he's thinking. But I'm thinking, that's actually a great image, that we as believers are in a fight. We are not home yet. We are not resting. We are in the middle of a war. And the Bible describes that war often. So this first heart, there is a satanic opposition and that is the reason the text gives as to why this heart does not respond. Satan takes it away. Number two, we will see the shallow heart, and that is verse 16 and 17. And others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. There's that word again that Mark loves to use, immediately, immediately. And there is an initial response. Perhaps you've seen someone that is excited about the Word of God. They're excited about a sermon. There's an initial joy. But time will show what truly happened in that heart. Scripture teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which just means that God has promised, God has committed Himself to progressively sanctify those who are His children. Scripture is very clear about this. He who began a good work in you of salvation will complete it. God will finish what He starts in justification and then in sanctification and in glorification. And so these are people who receive it with joy. There's an initial excitement. But look at verse 17. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the Word, they immediately fall away. Now, as you look at the four hearts, the Scripture is very clear that the first heart is an unbeliever. It says it, especially in the other uh, parallel Gospels, so that they won't be saved. And then the last one is clearly a believer. You see the fruit so the question is, what about these two hearts in the middle? And so I'll, I'll leave that question for y'all to think about that. But what we see is that there is a seed that is sown that does not bring about fruit. There's persecution because of the Word, and they immediately fall away. God did not act towards them as they hoped or thought He should have acted. 
God didn't keep his deal? And why did he allow this type of suffering in my life? Adversity is what drives them away. Think about the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Moses speaks to them in chapter 4. He tells them the good news, and they're excited. But when you get to chapter 6, after things didn't happen quickly, and they are suffering more because of Moses being there, he gives great news. He continues to state the promises. He says, God's going to bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but listen to this, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There was a struggle to hear God's Word because of adversity. And yet before, when Moses spoke to the same group of people, it said that they believed and that when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So how did they go from bowing in worship to I don't want to hear you. Adversity. Adversity. One author says, we read of hypocrites who delight to know the ways of God, Isaiah 58.2, of Herod who heard John with joy, of others who rejoiced in his light, of those to whom Ezekiel was a beautiful song, and those represented here by the stony ground received the word with joy and yet came to nothing. In Ezekiel 33, 32, God says this to Ezekiel, and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they won't do it. So today, if Ezekiel was today preaching, Ezekiel's got all these YouTube views. People love to hear his sermons. He's a great preacher. And God is saying, they love to hear your sermons, but they're not going to do anything about it. It's not affecting their hearts. It's not affecting their, the way they live. The effect of the word on this type of heart that Jesus is describing here is similar to the footprints and the sand of the sea which disappear at the next high tide persecution. R.C. Sproul tells of his own conversion story. He says, the night I was converted, my best friend also made a profession of faith. Before we went to bed that night, we both sat up and wrote to our girlfriends about our conversions. However, when we woke up in the morning, my friend had completely repudiated what he had joyfully embraced the night before. While my life had changed forever, since then, I have always been obsessed with seeing people respond to the gospel. I find myself hoping and praying that the Word will take root in those who make professions of faith. And that must be our desire. That must be our prayer. That must be our work. We are not to jump to quick conclusions by apparent initial responses to the work of the Word. We are to pray and, and see that that Word takes root in the life of that person. The third heart we see in verse 19, 18 and 19, would be the distracted heart, the distracted heart. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones 
who hear the word, but, and here's the contrast, and he's going to list three things, the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and number three, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So let's look at those three things that Jesus describes because these happen in the hearts of believers. We are not immune. When God saves us, He gives us a new heart. We go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We are dead and then we are alive. We don't have the Spirit of God and now we have the Spirit of God, but we still have the heart that Jeremiah says is wicked and sick. We still have the propensity to great evil and to great distraction. So these, these are real struggles in our hearts. Number one, he mentions the cares of the world, of this age. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, there's a phrase that repeats itself. And it's the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, or it also says, the dwellers of the earth. And every time that phrase is used, it's describing non-Christians because that's their home. They dwell. This is, this is their true home. Psalm 17 says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. And so we can easily be carried away by the cares of the world and seek to have roots here in a way that is consistent with the heart of an unbeliever. And we can do that as true believers. The second thing he says that are forces, things that happen that will choke the word in our hearts, number two is the deceitfulness of riches. So the question is, in what sense are riches deceptive? Because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says riches are deceitful. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have more. In fact, 1 Timothy 6, when he instructs the rich, he never says, you need to stop being rich. He says, with your riches, don't put your hope in your riches. Be generous. Know that these riches are uncertain. But riches are deceptive, are deceitful, because they promise security, stability, satisfaction. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon having had riches, observes a lot of things, and he says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. God gives the ability to enjoy and, and Solomon's saying they, they have all this, but God doesn't give them the capacity to enjoy it. So that's why riches can be deceitful. Paul suffered the abandonment of one of his co-workers, Demas, having forsaken me, having loved this present world. Judas betrayed Christ for money and was already stealing money before he betrayed him. Paul warns Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, 
It is through this cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The Bible doesn't say that being poor is more spiritual or being rich is more spiritual. It's not, as someone said, it's not what you possess, but what possesses you. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then Jesus had warned his disciples in Luke 12. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And this is a struggle for someone who lives in the United States. It's a struggle for someone who lives in Argentina. It's the same heart. It has different colors, different ways. But it is a real struggle, and it is subtle. Someone said if these people are poor, they are deluding themselves into thinking that they would be happy if they were rich. But if they are rich, they delude themselves by imagining that if they were richer, they could be satisfied. Kent Hughes says, the deceitfulness of wealth, keeping up with the Joneses, lures them with the promises of great good. It's about buying things you don't need to impress people you don't like with money you don't have. Isn't that great? Buying things you don't need to impress people you don't like with money you don't have. And so Jesus warns of the deceitfulness of riches. None of us are immune to it. Number three, he says that the other thing that chokes the heart, that chokes the word in the heart, is the desires for other things. And it doesn't specify. So there's just other desires. There's other things we desire more than Christ and His Word. And so, therefore, the Word isn't exciting to us because there's something else we're excited about. And so that's, that's the question we have to ask, us, ask ourselves. What is it that really interests you in this life? And one thing I've been trying to pay attention in my own spiritual life is not only to take care of my thoughts, but to pay attention to my affections. What am I passionate about? Given free time, what would I like to do and why would I like to do such and such? And there are a lot of things that are good things to be passionate about that God allows us to enjoy His creation. But it's easy for the desire for other things to choke the work of the Word of God in our hearts. Because there's something else that we're more excited about than His Word, than His glory, than His, the extension of His kingdom. So if the previous terrain, we saw that adversity pushes them away. In this case, we, this case we see that prosperity pushes them away. So the challenge for us is to be careful how you respond to adversity, but then be careful how you respond to prosperity or the desire to be prosperous. Both can, according to Jesus, if you want to argue with Jesus, just see how Jesus does with those who argue with. He, he wins every argument. According to Jesus, both can push us away from the Lord. And sometimes adversity is better for our soul. Adversity is not always bad and prosperity is not always good for us. But the point here is that we need to respond adequately to both. So pay attention to your passions, to your desires, to your worries. In Matthew 6, Jesus would say, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things. And the version I have in Spanish says, Los gentiles ansiosamente buscan todas estas cosas. The Gentiles anxiously go after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. That, that's what the non-Christian heart does. He anxiously goes after these things. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Love the words of Jesus. Lastly, we get to the fourth heart in verse 20. And this is what we long for. This is what I long for in my own heart. This is what I long for when I preach God's Word. I know that it's very likely that not every heart in a room will have this heart today through God's Word, but this is what I pray for and labor towards and in my own home, hope to see in my own heart, a fruitful heart, verse 20. And those like seed sown on good ground, hear the Word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Jesus chose us in salvation, not just to save us, but He chose us to what? To bear fruit. That is part of the whole package of salvation. He wants to produce fruit in our life, fruit in how He changes our character, fruit of the Spirit, fruit in how He uses us in other people's lives. And so this is the heart we should long for. Lord, give me this heart that when your word is sown, because the issue is never God's word. God's word is not boring. God's word is not insufficient. The issue is what kind of heart is God's word going to be sown on when it's sown on my heart? A wise man from the east, as he journeyed, arrived at a beautiful valley where there was a stream the reflection of the sun on the water appeared pure and precious. However, when he descended into the valley, he saw that it was dirty, muddy, and it was evident that the water could not be consumed. He looked near the stream and saw a shepherd working hard to filter the dirty water to give to his flock. He poured the water into a pitcher, waited for the sediment to settle, and then transferred the water to a cistern. After that, he passed the water through stones and sand to filter it. The wise man observed the effort of the young shepherd to fill a cistern with clean water and said, my son, why so much labor? What is the purpose? I am a shepherd. This water is so dirty that my flock will not drink it, and therefore I have no choice but to purify it gradually. So I do it this way so that they can drink, but it is hard work. The wise man replied, it is good that you work this way, but you don't realize that your effort is not well applied. With half the labor, you could achieve a better outcome. I believe that the source of the stream is contaminated and impure. Let's, let's make a pilgrimage together and see. So they walked a few kilometers over rocks and hills until they found the root of the problem. There was a group of wild animals drinking from an open well connected to the stream. As they drank with their feet, they dirtied the water. Due to these creatures, the water they approached was always dirty. My son, said the wise man, focus now on protecting the source and take care of this well that is the origin of the stream. When you have done this and have managed to keep away these wild beasts, the stream will take care of itself, flowing pure and uncontaminated, and you will no longer need to work as you are doing. The young man followed the advice, and as he did, the wise man said, son, listen to the word of wisdom. If you're wrong, do not try to correct your external life first but seek to correct your heart first because from it flow the springs of life and your life will be pure if your heart is pure. Proverbs 4 tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. 
But if you are here today and Jesus Christ is not your Lord, your King, your Shepherd, your true passion, you need to be born again. And you won't be able to clean that heart until you have a deep surgery done by the God who made you and the God who sent His only Son to die on the cross to take upon Himself the very wrath of God in your place and become sin in your place and then rise from the dead so that there is a great exchange. You receive His righteousness, His perfection, and He takes on your sin. And when you come to Him in faith, trusting and believing and repenting of your sins, the Bible promises that He will give you a new heart and that you are born again and you have new life, you are joined to Him. And now as a believer, we are able to pay attention to our heart because we have the Holy Spirit, we have His Word, we have the Gospel, and yet we also have a heart that is prone to wander. And so, as we wrap up our time, I'd like to apply this specifically to us this afternoon. I don't fully understand the more I think about this, how the timing of regeneration, in other words, a heart that is dead, becomes a heart that now has a true uh, life in it, faith, the hearing of God's Word, the work of God's Spirit, the preaching of God's Word, the human response to the scriptural commands to hear to believe. Now, I, I know some things about it because Scripture describes, but I don't know how it all fits together. But I know that all of this happens, that it is God who regenerates, and He does it through our faith. And if I want to have more hope of someone coming to know the Savior, I am going to expose that person as much as I can to the Word of God because how does faith come? It comes through the hearing of God's Word. That is the means by which faith comes. And the same is true for my growth as a believer. And so what should our attitude and actions as hearers of God's Word be? And I ask you to think about the question of those middle hearts. I believe the passage is stating that these are hearts of unbelievers. The first, heart, the first three hearts are unbelievers, and the last heart is the heart of a believer. But having said that, as believers, we can look like, as we are falling into hearts that are prone to harden, because not only Pharaoh hardened his heart as a non-believer, but often we see the disciples had an issue with hardness of heart. And the idea of hardness of heart is the truth can't penetrate. It doesn't go in. And so the, the truth is powerful, but there is this obstacle. So how do we attempt to, knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that his Spirit does the work, but what should we do on our part to make sure that we approach the last heart, that that's the consistent, as we struggle to consistently be that type of heart. So let me just give you a few commands that Scripture gives us. One is to listen, pay attention. Pay attention to God's Word on Sundays. Pay attention when you read your Bible, you want to read it with an excitement, Lord, speak to me. And then respond. Don't get in the habit of just reading. Ask the Lord to help you respond. Believe what God has told you in His Word. Repent of sins 
that the Scripture confronts you with. Obey commands that Scripture shows you clearly you need to obey. The idea that Jesus is teaching here, he says at the beginning, the idea of listen, let anyone who has ears to hear listen, is that we are to listen to the Word of God like nothing else that we listen to. And this is difficult in the age of information where we're so used to being exposed to all kinds of information all the time and not responding to that information. We need to treat the Word of God totally and radically different. We need to be reminded that we are before the presence of God when we are before the Word of God. That was a story that I find it hard to believe to be a true story. This person had told it, told it as if it was a true story, but nevertheless, it makes the point I'm going to make to finish our time. Once in the bustling confines of an airport, a chance encounter unfolded an unexpected journey. A man waiting patiently during the long hours of a delayed flight found himself engaged in a remarkable conversation with what he thought was a fellow traveler. As they exchanged stories and shared the camaraderie that often accompanies weary hours of waiting, the stranger made an extraordinary proposition. I'm a pilot, the man revealed with a warm smile. I have a small plane. There are two of us on this journey, and there's room. No need to worry about expenses. You can even refund your ticket, and we can depart right away. Torn between skepticism and the allure of adventure, the man cautiously agreed to this unexpected turn of events. Soon they found themselves soaring above the clouds in the intimate confines of this small aircraft. However, the revelation that followed was as unexpected as the journey itself. With a mix of disbelief and concern, the pilot admitted, there's something you should know. I occasionally faint when I see clouds. It happens sometimes, from time to time. The irony of the situation quickly unfolded, and despite the initial clear skies, clouds gradually appeared, and the pilot succumbed to the unconsciousness. And the two that were left in the plane said, wake them up so I can kill them. <laughs> Amidst the high altitude uncertainty, a tense moment ensued, the lone Conscience passenger grasped the gravity of the situation, but a glimmer of hope emerged through the radio. The control tower of a nearby airport became their lifeline, and they were able to communicate with this tower of a nearby airport. And here's what the person said from the tower. It says, you can't see me, but I can see you on my radar. I know where you're at, exactly where you're at, and you need to listen to my voice as if your life depends on it because your life depends on listening to my voice. The most important thing right now is for you to pay attention to my voice. Listen to me very carefully. Do exactly as I say, and you'll be fine. You can't see it, but you're flying straight into a mountain, and in four minutes, you're going to crash and you're going to die, unless you follow my voice. In the midst of the airborne crisis, the only beacon of guidance was the controller's voice. Storms loomed ahead, and the sole anchor was the calm direction transmitted through the airwaves. Against the odds, the plane landed safely. Upon reaching their final destination, the man had the chance to meet the pilot in person at 
his hotel or meet the person in the, in the radio station, controller station, overwhelmed with gratitude and tears, he uttered, you're the voice who guided me. Thank you for leading me home safely to my final destination. Brothers and sisters, we have a voice that we are to listen to. We live in a dangerous world. We always have since the fall. We need to listen carefully to this voice as we navigate the trials and the storms of this life until we arrive home safely. Let us pray.